From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. There's a reason that Bernie Sanders still has a lot of support, despite all the attempts of the president to discount socialism as an economic philosophy, and it's because of millennials. Derek Thompson writes about this in The Atlantic in a piece called How Capitalism Broke Young Adulthood. So it sounds like, and I'm a baby boomer, capitalism worked great for me, but what you're saying is uh, my kids are not convinced. So so lead us through the, uh, the, the thinking that you talk about in your piece. Sure. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, 10 years ago, uh, capitalism was more popular among millennials and Gen Z than it was among your generation, the baby boomer generation. But something has happened in the last 10 years. Uh, and I think it really starts with the Great Recession and the aftermath of the Great Recession, which was really bungled. And the elevated unemployment rate and slow wage growth has particularly stung young people who've had a really hard time starting their young adult lives. That means not only have they graduated from college with high student debt. Uh, They've also had a hard time making enough money to pay for essentials like uh, medical coverage or child care. And then really importantly, uh, housing is one of the important ways that boomers have built wealth in this country. And the housing market has largely been closed to millennials. Uh, Millennial home ownership is about a third lower than it was for previous generations. Housing is really expensive across the country. And so I think there's this sense among this generation of 85 million people that the system uh, that exists, the status quo has failed them, and they need something else. Bernie Sanders is out there offering a compelling something else, and that's why I think they are uh, reaching for his message. But you also you also argue that baby boomers who oppose Bernie Sanders' brand of socialism are being hypocrites because they benefit from socialism. Right. Let's say so. It's interesting because right now, if you ask Democrats under 35 and over 65 who they support, uh, a lot of them support uh, uh, Joe Biden over 65, um, but they really dislike Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And then under 35, uh, about 50 percent of them support Bernie Sanders compared to 5 percent who support Joe Biden. So uh, there's a huge generational split here. And I think that it's interesting, even ironic or oxymoronical, because you have a a lot of these older Democratic voters who are extremely anti-socialism, but they live, as I write, in a world that is actually somewhat socialist. Uh, the federal government already guarantees single-payer health care to Americans over 65. That right. system is called Medicare, and it's very popular and successful. Senior citizens also receive an income subsidy called Social Security, which is literally socialism. And then while elderly Americans, I think, are often very critical of uh, the idea that the federal government would subsidize student loans for young people or even pay back you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of student loans to people, say, under the age of 40, um, they They are beneficiaries of this other policy of government debt subsidy called the mortgage interest deduction. Um, The average American homeowner is 55 years old, and the federal government every single decade gives back homeowners $800 billion in taxes paid um, by by essentially adjusting their their gross income uh, by giving them the mortgage interest back um, uh, through the tax code. Uh, So the economist Ed Glazer, who's an older economist, has likened these policies to boomer socialism. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to write this piece to essentially say, look, boomer socialism exists. 
maybe we should be a little bit more generous in allowing for the possibility that some form of Bernie socialism could help as well. Yeah, and I'm sure that there would be some people my age who would chafe at your your definition of Social Security as socialism because they think they paid into it. But really, your your Social Security money is coming from people who are currently working and sending it to you. So basically, it's your kids who are paying your Social Security out of their right. uh, payroll tax. I, yeah, there, there's a lot of definitions of socialism, and this is an issue where you know we don't need to go too far down uh, the the sort of uh, the, the definition path. But um, you know, I tend to my my the brand of socialism to which uh, I, I that I find most appealing is what's sometimes called social democracy. This is uh, the kind of socialism uh, that you can see in in Scandinavia, in Denmark, in Sweden, in Norway. And, you know, social democracy doesn't mean free money. It means you have the government taking responsibility of more essentials, uh, of more income redistribution, um, and of a larger share of the economy. And so to essentially have a system by which almost every single American is paying into it over the course of their working life to guarantee a nationalized retirement program, you know, that is social democracy. That is to a certain extent socialism. And it is also, without question, one of the most popular programs in the history of the United States. So I just think it's important when people criticize socialism, at least this definition of it, that they stop and ask themselves, do I like or dislike the socialist policies that already exist, like, say, Medicare or Social Security or, say, you know, the government paying um, for K-12 through education at the public school level. These things do tend to be somewhat popular, and the question therefore becomes, are there other necessities of a modern adult life that we think should also be provided for or guaranteed by the government, like, say, health care for people under the age of 65? That, I think, is where the Bernie Sanders argument is strong strongest precisely because it's so difficult for those over 65 to argue that their socialized health care doesn't work. Well, that's a good strategy. You t- you look at the benefits going to people over 65 and say, okay, why shouldn't your kids get the benefit of that? So what about then things like, I understand health care. I, I don't think there's much debate there. It's, it doesn't make any sense to for someone to, uh, to lose their job or their wealth because they haven't got enough money for a, a cancer operation or a heart operation. But um, on the home mortgage deduction, would you then suggest a similar deduction for people who pay rent? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm not necessarily a fan of the mortgage interest deduction. Uh, mm-hmm. I just think that it's, a, it's an industrial policy by which the government is choosing uh, to preference larger homes. Um, you know, there's been a debate about whether or not that should happen, and clearly we've decided that we want people to be homeowners in this country, and we want them to have big houses where they get a bunch of money back on the mortgage interest in their tax bill. Um, I would prefer that the money just be money, plain old simple money, not money attached to rent, not money attached to homeownership, that it's just money. And the best way to just give people money is to just give people money, to essentially say either here's a, you know, a universal basic income yes. that you get, or maybe if we decide that it's really important for so people So you're part to of the Yang gang. Of course. I'm not necessarily part of the Yang gang. I just, I would prefer if, if the choice is between a universal basic income or a, a, uh, a, a housing specific subsidy, I think it's always better to just give the money rather than to preference a specific behavior about which I might be ambivalent. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that the best use of money is to subsidize. But then the, you run into the, the moral hazard argument. Family how, how, are you gonna, how will you answer the moral hazard argument? You give people money, they get lazy. Because at least with Social Security, yeah. even though it's not true, It only goes to people who have paid into it, so they think they're just getting their money back. 
You're totally right. And so, and you know, I'm, I'm giving you a, a menu of options here. Um, you know, one one option, for example, is to say, well, if people get money for owning, they should get money for renting. That's option number one. I don't like it that much. Option number two that we talked about is the universal basic income. It says you're a human being by sheer virtue of your being a human being. Here's you know twelve thousand dollars a year. That isn't necessarily even my favorite option. My favorite option actually is to keep money flowing through the workforce um, to say that uh, you know we have an earned income uh, tax credit uh, that essentially gives people back money um, as long as they are working. I think this works pretty well. I think it keeps people attached to the workforce, which I think is pretty important um, in a, for a variety of reasons. And I think maybe we should double or triple the earned income tax credit. Now, the issue of, of doing that is it means that there might be people who are in you know, really deep poverty who might not benefit from this. And then maybe you should have sort of targeted anti-poverty programs as well. Um, that, is, that, that actually is an argument, once again, for, uh, for Yang's universal basic income. But again, I, w- I would prefer to have the conversation focused around uh, doubling, tripling the earned income tax credit um, or providing some kind of benefit um, that is relatively universal. That's just simple money. Um, and people can decide how they want to use that money. You know, if they, if they want to use it for rent, fantastic. Here you go. They want to use it to buy a big house out in Plano, Texas. You can use it to buy that big old house out in Plano, Texas. Um, but we're not essentially saying, here's the money, but you only get it if you behave in the way that we think is right. Yeah. So... Uh, since this article appeared in the Atlantic, uh, what were the comments like? Did you did you trigger any baby boomers? You know what was interesting is that I wrote this article not to trigger baby boomers and certainly not to trigger uh, Bernie supporters um, uh, because I don't actually consider myself as as deep and and strong a Bernie supporter as a lot of other people that I know online, but rather to do a a good faith representation of the Bernie Sanders argument for people that might not agree with him. I think it's really interesting how unpopular Bernie Sanders is among Americans over the age of 50, even Americans over the age of 50 who consider themselves Democrats, a party which Bernie Sanders is now the plurality favorite to win the nomination of, according to 538 and Nate Silver. Um, so if, if, if Bernie Sanders is, 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 has a good chance of being the nominee for the Democratic Party, I want older Democrats to understand exactly what he stands for and what the economic circumstances are of millennials who would support him. And that's what this piece was about. It was to say, look, in the 20th century, we decided as a country that modern American capitalism as it exists had broken the process of growing old. And so we created Social Security and we created Medicare and we created Medicaid. And the poverty rate for senior citizens in this country plummeted from about 50% to less than 10%. And their insurance was practically guaranteed. It was a huge win for the American welfare state. I'm saying that the same way that modern American capitalism might have broken the process of growing old, it might have be breaking the process of growing up. And we should be open to the possibility that the same way that social democracy paved a way for a better old age in America, that social democracy might too be able to pave a way for a better young adulthood in America. Just one more thing. If we're going to go the social democracy route, as they've done in some of those uh, Europe and Scandinavian countries, are we prepared to pay their 50 percent tax rate? I don't know. Uh, that's a really, really big question. Uh, there's a variety of ways uh, to, to raise the money for, uh, for policies like this. Um, you can raise progressive taxes uh, on the rich uh, by raising income taxes, capital gains taxes, wealth taxes. Uh, you can try to raise taxes across the board, as Bernie Sanders, I think, has been uh, commendably open to, uh, considering that that's not a particularly popular uh, policy position. Um, you can also uh, try to run higher deficits. Uh, right now, we're running, you know, one 
one trillion dollar deficit, which you know if you were um, uh, listening to that in the 1980s, early 1990s, you'd have a coronary. Yes. Uh, but today, it, you know, we're running a trillion dollar deficit, and interest rates remain relatively low, um, which suggests to me that there is some, something has changed either with productivity rates, with um, expectations of, of inflation, with demography, such that we can actually probably have a higher deficit than we could have sustained, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and so, you know, you can, you can deficit finance it, you can raise the money through taxes, um, you can, you know, nudge people toward embracing a higher tax rate. One thing that I, that I, I sort of think of when I think about, you know, will Americans accept higher taxes is that, you know, there's nothing, uh, you know, chemically or genetically distinct between Americans and, and, uh, and the Danish or, or the Swedes. The difference is culture and expectations. And in Sweden and in Denmark, there's this understanding that, yeah, you pay an enormous share of your income in taxes, but you like what you get for it. It's kind of like the equinox model of socialism. Yes, it's expensive, but I like what I get. I like the workout equipment. I like the lotions. I like uh, the, the, uh, the, the I like the showers. I like the whole aesthetic of it. I pay a lot and I get a lot. And I think what Americans will have to see if they're going to embrace Scandinavian-style socialism is that they're going to have to see that if they pay a lot, they get a lot. And that requires the government not only promise uh, its citizens um, a fantastic universal health care system, but that it also deliver. And that's its own challenge, frankly, and you know, outside the scope of my simply making older Americans are trying to get older Americans to feel comfortable with the idea that a little bit of socialism has helped them and a little bit of socialism could also help their kids. Derek Thompson wrote How Capitalism Broke Young Adulthood. It's in the Atlantic. Derek, thanks. Thank you so much. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's morning news? You can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's morning news. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.